Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let my Holy One, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The word of the Lord. If the Christian faith were a written exam and it only asked one question, is God the source of all good? Then I think that we would all pass. It's such a basic Christian notion that it's easy to forget and not think about in the day-to-day of our lives. But the Christian life is not a written exam. The testing we experience runs far deeper than that. Because there's certainly being able to say the right things, being able to say what's true, but there's also the way that we actually live. And sometimes the way that we live actually tells a different story than what we profess, which is why we recognize that our answer might change if the question were posed a little bit differently. Was God the source of all good for you this week? Growth in the Christian life is in large part learning how to close that gap between the truth that we profess and the way that we actually live. And that's a challenging road because that's the challenge of sanctification. That is the path of gospel transformation, and we see that challenge in our psalm this morning. Psalm 16 is about coming to a place where God is your source of goodness. He's your source of delight, your source of joy, and finding in Him to be the true goodness that we, that we all really desire. And it starts off by asking God something, or David starts off by asking God for something that we all ask for. See, in verse 1, he says, Preserve me, O God. So David asks for protection. He asks for security. It's a request that we've all made. But then we have the second part of verse 1. He says, For in you I take refuge. Now the first half of the verse is easy. Asking for security. The second part of the verse is not. For in you I take refuge. It's one thing to ask God for security, but it's an entirely different category to actively place your, your security in God as your refuge. So what does that actually look like? How do you find security in God's goodness? Well, this psalm actually does take two ideas that you might not consider as otherwise being related. Goodness and security. And if we read the first two verses together, you can see it. It says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So David asks for security, but then he focuses his attention on how God is the source of all goodness in his life. 
And therein lies the challenge of this psalm, that your sense of security would be deeply rooted in your experience of the goodness of God. That your sense that everything is okay. That your sense that there, that as a product of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, the, the result is that you would have a deep and abiding security. And we see this same connection elsewhere in the Bible. And we actually see it in many different places where the pursuits of goodness and security are closely related. You know, think about the story of the rich young ruler in Mark 10. He comes to Jesus looking for what? Security. He comes and asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The deepest security of all. But remember how Jesus responds. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And then he goes on and says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, do not defraud. And the returnular says, all of these commandments I have kept from my youth. So Jesus challenges him at the core of his being. Goes right to the foundation of his life. And he says, well, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. So what's Jesus doing? Well, he's saying, if God alone is good, and you call me good, and you've kept the commandments, then let's start with the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. Get rid of everything you have, sell it to the poor, and come, follow me. Come and follow goodness itself. Stop holding on to the things that you take security in, and how about you start finding real security by beginning to come and pursue real, genuine goodness. But we know the story. The rich young ruler goes away full of sorrow because he had great possessions. So he comes to Jesus looking for security, but when he goes away, he leaves with all those same great possessions, but he leaves with more insecurity than when he started. Why? It's because he was unwilling to have his definitions of goodness and security reoriented. His possessions were his source of goodness and blessing, and he was unwilling to let go and part with the security that he, think they, that he thought they provided. We all know that guy. We all know and can relate to that struggle. There's a rich young ruler in all of us. We struggle to experience the security that we desire because we're unwilling to let go of what we feel offers our life goodness and blessing. You know, how easy is it to get stuck in the rut of thinking that, you know, the security we desire is going to be found through the blessing of career success or the right job or the right financial portfolio, you know, and those are all good things. But we often think that security is going to automatically come along with those things. Or we think that security is found from status amongst our peers. Or it's always going to be based on our performance. Let's take career for a second, because it's an easy target. Albert Brooks recently wrote an article that had the most encouraging title. It said, your professional decline is coming much sooner than you think. And in the article, he talks about his research where he looks at all sorts of industries and looks at the inevitable decline that everyone faces in their career. And he said, essentially, every person that he encounters when he talks about this, every person thinks that the, the most fulfilling, the most productive years of their career will be in the final years. But he said, that's actually not true. 
It's actually not even close to true. He said the most productive part of almost every single career, and of course there's exceptions, but he said almost across the board, the most productive years of any career is in the first 20 years, and after that, there's a sharp decline. So, over the last 100 years, for instance, the majority of Nobel Prize winners are all in their late 30s. Most novelists have to reach the bestseller list by their 40s if they ever want to make it at all. Most tech entrepreneurs have made their, the entirety of the bulk, or almost the entirety of the bulk of their fortune in their 20s, and it's almost non-existent after the age of 30. And he said there's all sorts of factors that when you start a career and you have this idealistic vision of your life, you realize that's not how it really goes. There's other factors at play. When you're 50, you don't have the energy when you were 22. Whenever you get older, you take on a marriage, you take on kids, and you take on concerns. Your mind is sometimes elsewhere. You have anxieties that distract you from work. Or the fact that as you climb that ladder of promotion, with every, every rung after the one you were just on, it gets harder and harder and harder to climb. Or the fact that you, know, you don't go into your career thinking that you're going to have to play the game of politics. And you've got to deal with the fact that people are going to backstab you and look to use you to climb that ladder. He said there's all sorts of things that we don't understand, and in the end, we have that career decline. So, now that all of you are so excited to go to work tomorrow, what's he really saying? He's simply pointing out the fact that, you know, while there are many factors, he's just from a secular point of view, pointing out the fact that if you look for security and goodness in your career then you seriously have to wrestle with the fact that your least fulfilling years are ahead of you. He ends with a great quote. He says, Unhappy is he who depends upon success to be happy. And he ends his article by even saying from a secular perspective, the only people in the end that end up being happy are those that find some sort of transcendent value. And we know that. And it's not just career. It's so many other things uh, in life that we trust would bring those types of security and goodness, but they really don't. There's no data that actually says happiness increases with wealth. There's no data that says happiness increases with your ability to afford luxury and comfort. In fact, one study found that your sense of feeling rested after a vacation dramatically decreases as your income increases. Because people can't stay off their phone. They can't stop making that phone call, checking voicemails, calling into the office, sending emails. They never leave the office. Now, you know, we could look at statistics all day, but at some point we have to stop and ask, why are we so prone to believe that these things provide the goodness and security that we desire? Why is the rich young ruler so familiar to all of us? Why is it that on the one hand, we can profess that God is the source of all good and yet look for that goodness elsewhere? It's the way sin works. It's how sin operates. You know, if you go back to the fall in Genesis 3, you see the same relationship between goodness and security. The serpent comes into the garden and he tempts Adam and Eve. But he tempts them with, with something that's what? It looks good. It's desirable. It's pleasing to the eye. So the way the serpent goes about tempting them is by casting doubt on God's goodness. And he starts to make them a little bit insecure about themselves. And so he says, essentially, you know, God isn't being honest with you. God actually knows if you have this good thing, you'll actually be like him. 
It sounds like he is withholding good things from you. Perhaps he can't be trusted. So what are we seeing? We're essentially seeing the means by which sin breaks into the world and takes root in your heart. It says you really don't need God to feel that security and goodness that you desire. You can actually have it right here. So Adam and Eve eat the fruit that looked good, and their first reaction was feeling a deep, deep, fractured insecurity in their soul. And they hid. And we've tried to fix that insecurity ever since. It's just that the fruit changes. We try and find it on some other tree. And sin doesn't come in and say, hey, you want the opportunity to destroy your life? Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't offer that. Instead, it, it operates by offering you alternative sources to the goodness of God. It offers forgeries. And so wouldn't you like to consume that? Wouldn't that feel good? Wouldn't it feel good to have a relationship with that person? Wouldn't it feel good to have that person's approval? Wouldn't it feel good to have what that person has? And attached with that is the hope that it would provide the security that, make, that would make us feel like we and everything else in our life is okay. We would look to that thing to solve that deep insecurity that we were born with that can only be satisfied and solved in one place. And so, how would David lead us to experiencing true security that comes from knowing the goodness of God? Well, he talks about two things in the remainder of the psalm. The first thing is contentment. But the way that David talks about contentment is by first dealing with one of the biggest enemies of, cont of contentment, which is comparison. It's comparing yourself to others, comparing their life with yours. And it's so easy to do. A couple weeks ago, I pulled into my driveway after work, and I looked over at my neighbor's fence. And old Craig just put up a brand new fence, and it looked amazing. I was like, that looks fantastic. And I look over at my fence, and I'm like, well, now my yard looks condemned. You know, it's like just the board sticking out. It's a safety hazard with the screws and nails. It's happened so quickly. And we certainly, we exist at a point in time in which, you know, we, we live with unprecedented access into one another's lives through social media. And we can all just creep on each other's lives and it's perfectly okay. You know, you can follow someone's vacation. You can realize what drink they had at Starbucks, what they had for dinner. You can watch their kids grow up, and they could live across the country or people that you haven't seen in years. And the thing is, you don't even have to ask. It's all volunteered for you to check out. It's fun, you know. It's a way to stay connected with people, to celebrate life's moments and milestones with others, but we also know that there's a darker side to it. There's a darker side that preys upon our impulses to compare ourselves with others. So yeah, you can be happy for someone's vacation, but you start to compare it against yours. Or you can be happy about, you know, the day or week that someone had, but then you compare it to yours. You compare their kids with where your kids are at. It's hard not to do. You know, how do you, I mean, honestly, how do you not feel discontent? You know, when you're looking at pictures over the summer of people, you know, splashing in the waves on the beach and you're stuck in traffic eating a bag of chips or a protein bar, you know, because you're so busy for lunch. Or you're sitting on vacation on the beach looking at pictures of people that take a vacation in the mountains, and you're like, hmm, maybe we should have gone there, you know? It's so easy to do. Because comparison is just another subtle way that sin drives us away 
from the goodness of God. It feeds on our discontent. It brings it to the surface by saying, you know, wouldn't life really be more fulfilling if you had that? So what does David have to say about comparison? Well, verse 4. He says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. So David experiences that same impulse we do. He's recognizing that pull of sin to focus his desires on what others have and compare his welfare with, with theirs. But he gets to the heart of it real quick and he says, Essentially, that any life that isn't worth, any life that's not pursuing God as their source of security and goodness, in the end, it's not a life worth wanting or envying or desiring. Because any life that's not doing that, the inevitable reality is sorrow. It may look good on the surface, but a life that is not pursuing God is filled with sorrow. How much, you know, how much do we struggle to look beneath the surface when we compare ourselves with others? We see that vacation, but it might have been a terrible time with extended family. You know, you see, you see that their, their kids on the last day of school celebrating, but it was a hard year for that family. Or you see somebody with an amazing meal, yet it was a meal that was eaten alone. In all these ways, we're challenged to recognize that beneath the surface of life, in the end, a life that is not pursuing God is one that ends in sorrow because there's no other source of goodness. It might appear that way for a moment, but in the end, time will show that it's fleeting. David would have you draw away from comparison, and instead he would talk about contentment in verses 5 and 6. He says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And right there is the beginning of contentment. It's saying to God, You hold my lot. You hold my welfare. You hold my well-being in your hands. Everything I have is because that's how you want it to be. You hold my lot. And he goes on and he says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And the lines he's referring to are essentially the dividing lines, dividing up property. So instead of looking at his neighbor's fence, And what's on the other side, he receives what he has as an expression of God's goodness to him. He says, it's okay that I have what I have. His sense of goodness and security aren't wrapped up in some other version of life that he doesn't actually have. And that's the freedom of contentment. That the goodness of God is available to you now, exactly the way that life is, regardless of what you're facing, regardless of what you own, or regardless of what you can afford. It's very challenging, you know, in our culture to live a life of contentment because we are bombarded with wealth. We're just surrounded by so much excess. It takes work to be content, but it's worth it. And if we just considered it a bit further, think about how much contentment could have life-changing effects for you. To be content with what you have would impact so many areas of your life. You know, think about how much less time you'd spend shopping online, looking for a new tool. Think about how much less time you'd spend looking for a new project around the house. Think about how much less anxiety you might have wondering if you should spend it or if you've already spent the money for it, if you could really afford it in the end because you're dealing with buyer's remorse. 
or not always worrying about how you're perceived by others because you feel content with who you are and who you are in Christ. It'd be life-changing because your sense of stability and security would very much be affected. But comparison always says that contentment is found in what you don't have. And then when you get it, you'll continue to compare and say, it'll say contentment will be found in these other things that you don't have. And then if you get that, the cycle goes on. But David says something different. He tells us that contentment is possible, regardless of what you have, because you have God, and God is good, and he would invite you to draw near to him. And he would invite you to draw near with what he points out, which is the second thing in this passage, is finding refuge. In verse 1, he says, for in you I take refuge. But again, how, does, how do you actually do that? How does David do it? Well, just look first at the beauty of how David describes the sense of security that he's come to know. It's in the second part of verses 7, 8, 10, and 11. The second part of verse 7, he says, In the night also my heart instructs me. Second part of verse 8, Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Verse 10, My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And the second part of verse 11, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see him express this sense of security that's not just in this life, but also in the life to come. He knows his soul will not see corruption. He knows that he will experience pleasures evermore in the eternal pleasures or in the eternal presence of God. His understanding of God's goodness is so secure that not even death is going to take away the possibility of experiencing that eternal bliss that awaits him. Nothing can separate him from that. Now, we can easily overlook that verse because we're used to that language, but we shouldn't do that so quickly. Because what's so fascinating about David's sense of eternal security in the afterlife is that up to this point in the scriptures, there's really no mention of eternity. There's no mention of the afterlife at all. In fact, the Old Testament has very little to say about eternity. It's very sparse when it talks about the afterlife. What we do know about it actually comes from the New Testament. So we have to ask the question, how did David come to such a deep, provocative sense of his security? Not just in this life, but in the life to come. How did he come to those conclusions? Well, we have to look at the first part of these verses. We've already looked at how David describes his sense of security, but now look at what precedes each of those descriptions. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night my heart instructs me. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. David's sense of security didn't just magically happen. He didn't just wake up with it. In each of these verses, this is the language of action. It came as a result of listening to the counsel of the Lord and listening to the convictions of the heart. It came as a result of setting the Lord always before him and always being in constant prayerful consideration that God's presence is with him and considering him in all things. It came as a result of committing to the path of life that God revealed to him, where David chose to live a life based on God's priorities, God's values, God's purposes, God's desires. 
And of course, we would all love to just wake up and feel that profound sense of security, but that's just not how it works. David teaches us you, you have to pursue it. You have to run after it. You have to completely reorient your life towards God who is goodness itself. And that's hard, but at the same time, it should also encourage us. How? Well, again, notice that nowhere does David ascribe his sense of security as being based on anything that he owns or possesses, some material thing. It's actually found through the simple realities of how God is already at work in your life because he is convicting you. He is always with you. He has made known to you the path of life. The real question is, if you want that kind of security, are you willing to get up and run after him? Because David says that if you do, a profound security awaits. When I was in college, uh, some good friends of mine were cross-country runners, and they were marathoners, crazy people. And we, we, uh, we talked one time about running, and I'd never really known any long-distance runners. And so I asked them, I said, you know, why... I said, I don't get, why do you run these 18, 20, 25-mile distances? I was like, it seems crazy to me. If you wanted to stay in shape, just run three, four miles. And they said, you know, we don't actually run to stay in shape. I said, well, then why do you run? They said, we run because of essentially what's called the runner's high. I said, runner's high? What is that? And they said, well, it's actually really hard to describe. But he said, it's... It's like this. He said, you know, when you get up early at like 3.30 or 4 to go on a two, two and a half hour run, you know, you start off running 20 miles and the first 8, 10, 20 miles are so hard. You get up so early that coffee doesn't even wake you up. And your feet just feel like bricks. Your hands feel heavy. Your body feels out of rhythm. You're slouched over and your posture's bad. Your breathing is labored. And he said, somewhere along the way, something clicks and your body goes into overdrive. And you get this burst of energy that's euphoric. And your feet start to feel like feathers. You start to get into a rhythm where everything feels like it's clicking on all eight cylinders. Your breathing levels out, you posture up, and you feel like you could run forever. Because that's why I run. Perhaps this author of Hebrews would encourage us in the same way. Therefore, let us lay aside every sin and every weight, and with endurance let us run the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Do you long for that security and joy? Will you run after him? Let's pray.